Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today's episode starts with a recording of an old Armenian folk song called Crane, or Grunk. Made in 1917, this is one of the most amazing recordings I've ever heard. The singer, Armenian soprano Zabal Panosian, is the subject of today's episode. But before we learn more about her world and her story, you might just want to stop what you're doing for two minutes, close your eyes, and listen.
The recording you just heard was a song by Armenian singer Zabel Panosian called Grunk or Crane. Here are the lyrics. Crane, where are you coming from? I am a servant of your voice. Crane, don't you have a bit of news from our country? Don't hasten away. You'll arrive at your flock soon enough. This is actually a song that we featured on a previous episode of Ottoman History Podcast that we recorded with today's guest, music researcher and reissue record producer Ian Nagoski. That episode was called American Music of the Ottoman Diaspora. And I listened to that episode as I was walking down the street where I live, running errands. And I have to tell you that this recording literally stopped me in my tracks in the middle of the road. That high note that Panosian hits in the middle seems like something that shouldn't be possible for a human voice. Like she's being held on a wire, trembling, in the grip of something larger than herself. Today, we welcome Ian Nagoski back to the podcast to talk about this song and the woman who recorded it, early 20th century Armenian soprano Zabel Panosian, who's the subject of a new book that Ian's just published called, again, a line from Grunk, I am a servant of your voice. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is the Ottoman History Podcast. Ian, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I've been a huge fan for a long time. That's kind of you. Thank you for having me. Could you just tell us a little bit about that song and what it's about and why it's significant? Well, Grunk is a a very famous old folk song. My co-authors, I should say, of the book are Harut Arakalian and Harry Kazelian. Harry uh, found that the earliest transcription of Grunk is very nearly identical to the lyrics that we have now. And that transcription uh, is 400 years old and found in Aleppo, Syria. It's a song about a crane. It's a a song where the singer actually addresses a crane, says, uh, where are you coming from? I am servant of your voice. Crane, don't you have a bit of news from our country? Hasten not to your flock, you'll arrive soon enough. It was a song that was uh, collected end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, by um, the great patriarch of Armenian music, Gomitas Vadarpet. The version that Gomitas collected, he collected in the East. I don't remember exactly where. But the singer, Zabel Pinozian, was from a place called Bardizak, uh, which is on the, the Bay of Izmit, uh, the Sea of Marmara, about 80 miles east of uh, Constantinople, Istanbul. So her version of the song that she knew growing up is melodically radically different from the version that basically everybody else has sung since Gomitas collected it. It's in a different mode, and she does some interesting things in her arrangement of it. So it's, it's a very special record. I've never heard anything else like it. And it made me want to know everything about her, since there was at the time nothing available to know. So maybe you could introduce us a little bit to Zabel. You mentioned, you know, that she's from um, a small town about 80 miles southwest of Istanbul. What was that place? Um, How did she learn to sing? And how did she come to be on this incredible recording? Yeah, she's from this place, uh, which is uh, Bardizag, it was called, 
about 80 miles uh, southeast of Istanbul, which was a almost entirely Armenian-speaking town, 90-something percent Armenian-speaking, of about 10,000 people, folks who had immigrated there from further east a couple of hundred years earlier, and had uh, stayed rather autonomous as Armenians through a combination of discretion and, and bribery. And uh, she was born there, 1891, was educated on the elementary school in the middle of the street. Uh, it was surrounded by mulberry groves. Silk production was the main source of income for the town. There were two silk mills on either side of the main road. And uh, she began singing in church when she was young. Her mother died when she was 11 years old. The 1890s, when Zabel was growing up in Anatolia, were a fearful time for Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. Between 1893 and 96, Sultan Abdul Hamid II pursued what his private secretary would call a policy of severity and terror against the Armenians. Ottoman authorities and ordinary people organized and joined waves of massacres against Christians, especially Armenian communities, some of whom were calling for reforms and others of whom were building a revolutionary movement in the vulnerable eastern provinces of the empire. Zabel's own life would be shaped by these broader forces. She had an experience when she was eight of having been abducted um, from her bed at night. Must have been terrifying. But she refers to it um, just twice. After the First World War, she mentions this experience of having been taken away in the middle of the night and being ridden off on horseback and made to sing and dance on a table for Turkish military men. And then, when she's about 15... She says there was a second abduction attempt, which prompted her family to send her away. She travels first to Egypt, probably because she only had an internal passport, and then someone there in Egypt was able to get her passage to the U.S., to Boston, to uh, marry another guy from Bardizak, from her town, named Aram Sarkis Panosian, who was about 10, 15 years older than her, and right about that time in his life, began working with the Tickner Brothers Postcard Company. He was a photo engraver. And they were significant developers in the history of the picture postcard. And he did quite well. And so he was very supportive of her. Um, got her English lessons and got her singing lessons. And she studied with a couple of people she said she learned practically nothing from. And then with a teacher named uh, Gertrude Duena, something like that. Older lady who was a professional voice teacher to whom Isabel was quite devoted and from whom she said that she learned the delicacies of the art of singing. And so there she is in Boston in the early teens. Um, she had a daughter uh, right before she turned 17 and is entering into Boston society as her husband is beginning to make some money. And she's attending the brand new Boston Opera. Um, and she gets enamored with that music and with her vocal teacher. And she learns to be a, a vocal artist in the, the popular style of the time, the bel canto coloratura vocal thing that was really big then, and probably saw Luisa Tetrazzini and Amelita Gallicurci and all of these people. She began her singing career there in Boston, um, was already fairly popular by 1914, 1915, when she was still in her early 20s, to the extent that actually she had to take out a notice in the Boston newspaper forbidding people from using her name at events that she wasn't actually appearing at. 
I suppose that's a sign of, uh, of, of some fame <laughs> that people are trying to use your name to advertise things you're not at. Yep. Seems like. How did it matter for her? I mean, so in some ways she's, you know, this is already an extraordinary life to come from a small town um, in Anatolia to Boston to become um, a vocal artist. How was her early performance and recording career shaped by the fact that she was from a part of the world where maybe people weren't as familiar with, um, you know, singers and musicians from from Anatolia as they were from, say, France or Italy or or even American-born singers. Um, how did her her kind of immigrant status shape her recording career? Well, she was singing for her community. She was singing for Armenian speakers, of of whom there were many, many in the Boston area. As a matter of fact, I first heard Grunk. Uh, because it was given to me as a, a record collection that was just given to me by a, a fellow named Leo Sarkeesian, who, when I met him, was in his or 93 years old, I think, and was in the process then of retiring from The Voice of America. And Leo was in the process also of dispensing with some of his possessions, uh, getting rid of his instruments and his paintings and all these things he'd accumulated over course of a kind of amazing life. And uh, we had met and he knew I was interested in these old records. And so he said, you know, do you want them? And I said, well, yes. So he gave me all of his records, including all the 78s he bought in New York City in the 1940s and 50s, but also all the 78s his, uh, his father and his uncle had bought in the Boston area in uh, the the teens and 20s. And among them was a cracked, broken copy of Zabel's record of Grunk. So that's how I first heard it. Uh, they were from um, Diarbaker, his uh, his family, and worked at the, um, the shoe factory in Haverhill. So anyway, there were lots of uh, Turkish and Armenian-speaking people in and around Boston. And that was her initial audience. She was singing for them in English and French and Italian, but also in Armenian. So that was the main part of her audience, I believe, for uh, the next five years, 1915 to 1920. Which, of course, as our listeners will know, is a, is also the time of the First World War and the Armenian Genocide um, back at home uh, in, in Anatolia. So I'm wondering sort of how we might think of her career and also of her music as being sort of in conversation with events that were happening not only in her new homeland, um, but also in the place she had come from. Oh, well, she was driven, driven to perform uh, in benefit of Armenians and Armenian causes. She raised ultimately millions of dollars for Armenian causes during that period, 1915 to 1920. Very, very active, um, do, doing all kinds of stuff, not just performing, but charity drives and anything she could do. Um, as reports were coming into the country, you know, it was it was very concerning for her and the people around her. Um, three of her siblings also arrived, a, a sister and two brothers, and um, her father did not. And uh, she learned a little bit later on that her father, in fact, uh, died of starvation. What happened in Bardizak was that um, young men were 
put to work on construction projects as of April 24th, 1915. And then all the guns were taken away from Armenians. And then leaders of the town were taken off and beaten. And then everyone was required to sell off all of their possessions, rugs, furniture, everything you had in the house, you had to take out onto the street and sell it to people from the neighboring towns. So, you know, Turkish uh, neighbors would come and buy everything you owned for a pittance. And then you had to give that money to the government to pay your fare to be deported. And you take one train to another train to another train, and then ultimately walked into the desert. And this is very likely how Zabel's father died. Um, of a town of 10,000 people, by 1917, there were several dozen people left. The Melbury Groves were destroyed. Floorboards were ripped up from the houses. The silk mills were destroyed. Um, everything was gone by the time Zabel begins recording, March of 1917. So, as it was the case for many other Armenians in the U.S., there simply was no home to go back to. The whole world you'd known was gone, and almost everybody you knew was dead, or you didn't know what had happened to them and suspected the worst. So the song, Grunk, speaks directly to that place that Armenian Americans were in at the time of being stranded and desperate for information about what had gone on back home. We can only imagine, I think, how important not only the fundraising, but also the the sort of musical production of a song like this would have been in that context. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, Zabel was not the only person to record this song, Grunk. You talk in the book about a colleague of hers, Armanag Shah Muradian, who also made a recording of that song. And I'm wondering if you could, uh, we'll play a little bit of that recording. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about sort of what's unique or what's kind of um, special to Zabel's version? Sure. Well, Shamaradian was uh, hands down the most important voice uh, for Armenians in the early 20th century in the U.S. Um, you may know there was a, a poem about him that uh, William Sarian wrote um, to the voice of Shamaradian. A uh, beautiful thing. I don't have it in front of me. But um, Shamaradian was about 10 years older than her and had... Um, Studied with Gomitas Vadarpit, uh, going back into the 19th century, um, had been arrested on a couple of occasions for revolutionary activities in, uh, in Georgia, um, was saved and released by a, an Ottoman official. He wound up as a choir director in his hometown for a little while, and then made it to France, where he studied under Vincent Dandy and um, Pauline Viardo who taught him for free, incidentally, and then got his big break, which was a starring role at the Paris Grand Opera in Gounod's Faust, 
and that makes him. And he's he, you know he tours all over Europe and he's rich. Goes from being totally broke to being very rich. And then uh, he goes 1914 to Constantinople, reconnects with Gomitas, and they record a, a series of records, including a version of uh, of Grunk. And one can hear on this it's same lyrics. Very different arrangement, very different melody. And this is the one that people generally think of when they think of Grunk. And uh, Gomitas plays piano on this. So we'll listen now to Armenian Shah Muradian's version of Grunk. We could notice how different it sounds from Zabel's. to Ian to learn what happens next. So then the war breaks out and he can't go back to Paris. So December 1914, he comes to the U.S. And sometime early in that year, uh, he meets Zabel. And the two of them begin doing joint concerts, um, upstate New York, Detroit, um, doing fundraising. And it's really based on his name, his reputation, and his artistic skill. Uh, that those concerts take place. 
And they sort of have parallel careers where they're meeting up and then going in different directions and then meeting up again for several years as they're both going around doing fundraising uh, for Armenian causes. And they both begin recording right about the same time. As a matter of fact, they both go and make uh, trial recordings for Victor Records, uh, and they're both rejected at separate sessions. Victor Records doesn't want either of them. (laughs) Uh, Can you imagine? And then within a matter of months, they then go to Victor's chief rival, which is Columbia Records, and begin making records for them. So it sounds like Armanag Shah Muradian really manages to kind of get out of the 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 box of being an Armenian singer or sort of only singing for 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 an ethnic or an immigrant community in his career as an as an opera star. Um, does Zabel try to make a similar move at any point? Absolutely. I mean, I think that she was um, very interested in that kind of career path. I, I think she really wanted to be Louisa Tetrazzini or Amelita Galakirchi or one of these big opera stars. Opera stars at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century uh, in the U.S. were what Hollywood stars became in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. I mean, that was what everybody wanted to be. That was glamour. And I think that she felt that she had a real ability and and had a vision of herself as a, an artist. She certainly was. I mean, she created something absolutely out of herself on the the 11 recordings that we have of hers. So maybe we could play um, one of those recordings now that's actually a song that it sounds like she did in French, uh, Charmant Oiseau. Could you tell us a little bit about that, um, about that recording? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, she does two recording sessions. One is March of 1917, and then again, uh, June 1918. At the June 1918 sessions, uh, she re-records several of the songs from the earlier session, uh, slower. Um, she records a couple of new songs in Armenian, and she records one song in French. It's from a lyric drama uh, by a guy named Lucien David, a little opera called The Pearl of Brazil. Anyway, this song, Charmant Oiseau, had been recorded a year earlier by uh, Emily de Galakirchi, had also been recorded by Luisa Tetrazzini, as it happens, and uh, she does her own version of it. It comes out as the flip side of one of our Armenian records, but not on every copy. It only comes out as the flip side on some copies. Other copies have an Armenian song on that side. So it's quite scarce, and it's the only example that we have of hers uh, singing in a language other than Armenian. She was recording at the time for what Columbia Records called their E-Series, which is their general foreign language series of records. Um, 
E for ethnic. They later changed it to F for foreign. And um, I think she would have loved to have recorded all of this stuff in French, English, Italian that she was performing in public in front of Armenian audiences, in front of larger audiences. Some of these benefits that she was doing at the time, you know, Calvin Coolidge is there, uh, General Atronic is there. Um, there are big celebrities attending some of these rallies and events surrounding World War I um, as, you know, patriotic things. She sings the Star Spangled Banner over and over again to thunderous applause. She was trying to be a, an artist and taken as an artist. It's so interesting because it sounds like she has that kind of broad audience in, in real time in the sense that she's performing for not just Armenian audiences, but also, you know, other audiences in the United States. But then what's recorded because of the shape that the record company imagine it, imagines her audience to take um, is very specific to her kind of ethnic category. Well, I think she was just beginning to have a, an audience outside of the Armenian community or outside of the community that was attending events surrounding war efforts, patriotism, stuff like that. She's only just beginning to make that transition about 1919, early 1920, when she she got a role in a um, big theater production in Boston uh, about the Solomon and David, and um, she plays Abishag, I believe, uh, in this, this thing that's got 500 dancers and 300 singers or something, a biblical pageant play. Um, that's her first real role as a actor that is not specifically uh, her first role on stage that's not specifically tied to her Armenian-ness in some way. But then, so in early 1920, she applies for a passport uh, for her and her 11-year-old daughter and says that they're going for several months to Europe to um, meet uh, family members, to um, do music stuff. So they, they visit England briefly and then uh, set up at the, um, the Hotel Vernet, uh, right by the Champs-Élysées. I visited there a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Nice place. Fancy. She F made it. Five-star hotel <laughs> with, with a two-star Michelin restaurant downstairs. Um, yeah, it's, it's a nice place. So she was set up there for about two years um, and she studies and performs um, she goes to Milan, studies there, performs at La Scala, wins an award, apparently. Um, it goes to uh, Cairo and Alexandria, uh, potentially to meet with people that she had connected with on her way to the U.S. And um, her, her singing gets better and better. She's quite well received. I mean, by this point, she's uh, nearly 30 years old. So one of the other things that Zabel did while she was in Europe was to meet Gomitas Vardapet, the kind of founder figures of Armenian, modern Armenian music. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that went, what that was like for her to meet this person whose songs she had been singing? Yes. Uh, it was not long after she arrived in Paris that she tracked down uh, Gomitas. Now, Gomitas had uh, been a teacher and friend to Shamaradian, who she'd been close to, and he had been somebody who had been arrested, of course, uh, April 24th, 1915, and from that moment onward had suffered from uh, mental health problems. And he'd stayed in a psychiatric facility for several years in Constantinople, Istanbul, and then 
in the, the late teens, he moved to Paris, where he spent the rest of his life in two psychiatric facilities. So she met him there in 1920, and she published an account of that meeting. It is the only first-person document that we have of hers. It's the only thing we have uh, in print of her speaking in her own voice, and it's the centerpiece of the book, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Harry Kazelian found it and translated it, and it uh, it continues to blow my mind. Her, her actual description of it and writing of it is very poetic and very beautiful and contains a lot of subtlety that I can't get across exactly, but I'll say that she was told not to go visit Gomitas uh, because he just the week before had had a visitor and he'd thrown his shoe at them. Um, but she went, she was insistent and she brought along with her two friends who were doctors. Um, they were very careful not to say to Gomitas that they were doctors because he hated doctors and they approach him and he's sort of out in the yard talking to himself, sort of walking around, uh, muttering or something. And she approaches and he looks at her and uh, says, yes, you know, can I help you? And she says, Father, uh, I'm a student of yours from far away. Um, oh, he says, first he says, uh, you remind me of a student of mine. And she says, I am a student of yours from far away, and we've never met. And he says, well, where are you from? And she says, Boston. And he says, Bostan, which is Turkish for vegetable garden. And he asks, you know, do they grow a lot of vegetables there? She says, no, and it's a little uncomfortable. And uh, she doesn't say that she's from Bartizak, which she could have said. And he would have known he visited there in, in the early teens. Um, she doesn't say that. She's flustered. And he says, well, you know, what, what can I do for you? And she says, well, I want to know the pieces that you've written of choral music. Is it okay to sing those for solo voice? And he says, yeah, of course, Absolutely. You know, if you know the song and you understand the song, sing it however you want. You know, it's yours. Take it. And um, she takes her leave. She says that she'll visit again. He says, oh, you know, she says, um, we, we don't want to tire you out. And he says, uh, yeah, okay, well, you, you come back sometime and you sing for me and I'll sing for you. And she says, I'll do that. And then she leaves and she never does. As far as we know, she never went back. Um, but she wrote this article and ended it with, you know, I believe, I hope that the Vadarpet can be cured and that one day we will all sing together again. And then I think that never happened. That's a big part of Zabel's story is things that seem like they could happen and then, and then don't. It's part of life. Well, maybe in honor of that meeting, we could play um, a, a song called Karun, Spring, um, that was collected and arranged by Gomitas and sung by Zabal Panosian.
Ah, yes, this is a, a very famous uh, Gomitas thing. And it's a song that uh, Shamaradian and Gomitas recorded also in 1914. Uh, Shamaradian, incidentally, was very careful not to step on her toes, and they didn't record any songs in common in the U.S. Another point about the Gomitas meeting, uh, about the, um, yeah, about the Gomitas meeting, is she doesn't mention Shamaradian. She doesn't say that they have this friend in common, this close person in their lives. So I actually don't know what happened to Zabel and Shamaradian's relationship and where that all went. But by the end of their three years of touring together off and on, she was the headliner and he was the opening act. Their positions had switched. And yeah, it's not clear what happened with that. Uh, Shamaradian ultimately winds up uh, moving to France and himself dying in a psychiatric facility. So I'm basically from like a, you know, jazz, blues, classical, rock and roll kind of background. And I tend to make correlations and analogies uh, among poems cross-culturally that uh, occur to me. And maybe, you know, the jazz standard spring is here. Spring is here. Why doesn't the, uh, why don't the birds enchant me? Something like that. It's about what a bummer it is to be sad and unloved at springtime when, um, it seems like the world should be full of hope, and it isn't. So Garun's lyrics are very, very short, but they're basically the same thing. It is springtime, snow has fallen, my love has grown cold to me. That's basically it. Um, yeah, it's a song that's been recorded a million times. And again, this is a, well, this is an instance where among Zabel's very few recordings, several different takes were in fact released it was very unusual for Columbia Records to record more than two takes of anybody, much less an ethnic foreign performer. They'd you know, make a recording of it, and they'd make a backup. And that was it. Two takes, period, done. Zabel, being who she was, being this serious artist personality, uh, recorded some of her material over and over and over again. One song she recorded nine times. Grunk she recorded seven times. Karun... She recorded, I can't remember if it's four or five times, and at least three different takes of Garung circulate on discs. Um, they look exactly the same. You can't tell the difference until you put the needle on them. And this one uh, is a take that I didn't know existed until uh, Harut Arakelian came across it at the Armenian Library and Museum uh, in Watertown, Massachusetts. And it's different because uh, there's no piano for the first minute. It's just the string quartet, and it's very, very effective. I, I'm particularly fond of this take. Um, they're all good, and they're all rather similar, really. She was able to do the same performance with, apparently, studio musicians uh, over and over again. So again, this speaks to her artistic uh, integrity, that she showed up at the studio with sheet music, instructed the performers, and then got the results she wanted out of them under rather primitive circumstances. These recordings are made 10 years before the invention of microphones. 
So this is just horns in the Woolworth building in Manhattan, uh, up on the, I can't remember, 12th floor or something. So um, she, she really, yeah, she, she made it work. Yeah, I'm very fond of her. In 1924, having met Gomitas and sung across Europe, Zabel returned home to the United States. But it seems like she found it a bit different from the place that she had left. At, at the end of that journey, three and a half years, she's in Europe. Uh, while she was in Italy, she begins to use her husband's first name uh, as her surname. Some performances she does as Zabella Ram. Then she comes home, 1924, after having been a celebrity, basically in Europe for three years. You know, a diva who was performing Rigoletto and the Barber of Seville. She comes back to the U.S. 1923 during this massive wave of xenophobia you know, right before the Johnson-Reed Act. The Johnson-Reed Act, also known as the Immigration Act of 1924, established quotas based on national origin for immigrants into the United States. And she gives a few performances where the Armenian press lists her both as Zabel Panosian and Zabel Aram, but she quickly drops the Panosian and begins to perform just as Zabel Aram, basically for the rest of her career. Some of that I take to be a step back from identification with Armenianness and wanting to be taken seriously as an artist, as a performer um, who is um, international. She sings songs of various countries in costume for each country and then ends with uh, an Armenian language performance of a few songs uh, at her concerts. So maybe this is a chance to talk about some of the images of her career that you reproduce in the book. There are a bunch of really wonderful images. Um, We'll reproduce, hopefully, a couple of them for listeners on the blog. But they were making me think about what it how hard it might have been for her to kind of break out of this mode of being a kind of ethnic artist, um, especially in sort of the mid early to mid 1920s that you were talking about. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you make of these images of her, um, the posters of her kind of advertising her music and her career? And I think it's interesting in a number of levels that we have so many photos of her from the 19-teens and 20s. They tell us a bunch of things. Uh, one is that she was appreciated. Um, her husband took a number of the photos. People liked seeing her face. She was nice to look at, a important factor among singers, opera singers at the time, that could get you attention and get you noticed. One of the interesting things about her life that I didn't deal much with directly in the book is the, the business of being a woman on stage, being looked at and judged and evaluated constantly, I think was a, a serious concern in Zabel's life uh, all the time, having to do with her artistry, uh, her being a woman, and her being an immigrant, and Armenian in particular. She does get cast, when she's finally cast in a, in a role, uh, in a, this, this uh, biblical pageant play, you know, she's cast as somebody who's wearing kind of Near Eastern garb and sort of quasi-haremish <laughs> uh, attire. So, yeah, that might have been some concession, I think. But, uh, of course, you know, cast in, you know, a Christian um, mold. Yeah, and then when she gets back from Europe in the 20s, you know, she presents herself very often 
in um, in the the costumes of these significant opera roles that she is inhabiting. She she takes costuming seriously, and wears the clothes of different countries. I, I think that's not insignificant. And does she continue to get those roles um, throughout the twenties, or sort of what happens what happens to her career when she comes back uh, from Europe to the United States? She does get to continue to sing, and she does perform some of these roles that she knows, but for rather minor companies. Now and then, she gets to show off what she's learned. My sense from the reviews that we have is that by about 1925 or 26, her voice is the best it ever was. So almost 10 years after her recordings, I think she probably really you know hit her peak. But even as she's getting better and better as a singer, her audience is dwindling and dwindling. By the time she's in her mid-30s, let's say, the other acts on the bill are like uh, novelty acts a lot of the time. She goes to California and gives concerts for the Armenian community there. Um, but when she does opera in New York or when she performs on the radio, um, it's it's really as a rather minor performer. And do you, do you have a sense of why that is? Is that because the, the sort of taste has changed um what wh- how how do we understand sort of this the fact that her voice is maybe the best that it's ever been but then her career starts to kind of dim at the same time well we have one review um from a newspaper in brooklyn who dis- who gave her a negative review said that her voice was thin and reedy um and that she was only suited to singing the quasi oriental airs that came at the end of her concert but he also, having mentioned those, uh, gives a kind of sideways reference to, you know, I'll leave it to the readers to guess her ethnicity or guess her nationality. So I don't know, maybe that's part of it. There could be any number of factors involved. You know, a, a business in the music career is not easy for anybody. It takes a lot of factors to come together in terms of publicity and meeting the right people and being in the right place and all this stuff. And you just have a short window in which to have those things all come together. It really could have been any number of things. I don't mean to sidestep the question, but I also don't want to project more than I actually know. (laughs) I mean, you have this amazing kind of epigraph um, for the book from a a later Armenian singer named Kathy Berberian, where Barbarian says, according to your book, there was an Armenian girl who was a big star at one moment, and then she sort of disintegrated into nothing. I mean, no one knows where she ended up. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about where Isabel ended up um, and sort of how we might think about the later parts of her life and her career. Yeah, that's Interesting. I I was uh, amazed when I heard that quote in a radio interview that was archived online, because that was 1972, and Zabel was alive and well in New York City, and lived another 15 years after that. So, she was still around. In fact, she was being written about now and then in the Armenian press, kind of in the past tense. She was the voice of a particular generation, that wave of Armenians that came And for later generations, I think several things happened. I think there was a period, Second World War, afterward, where, and now I'm not Armenian, so this comes from speaking with Armenians and a certain amount of projection, I think, from 
circumstantial evidence, but I think there was a period where eh, people were tired of talking about it. They didn't want to. They didn't want to think about the worst of it, which is kind of what some of her music represented. You know, the that darkness, and I think there was a certain fatigue that set in. Certainly, the massive success of fundraising during the teens and early twenties uh, for Near East Relief uh, drilled into the heads of every American that the word Armenian would always be preceded with the word starving. If there was one factor that I would guess led to Zabel changing her surname from Panosian to Aram, it's to get away from being a starving Armenian. That, as an artist, has to be such a drag after a while, to constantly be labeled like that. So it's in some ways the very history and the tradition that launched her career also then what she you know may end up wanting to move away from yeah i think she saw herself as um an artist in a larger sense and you know managed to achieve some of that she went to europe uh for the you know three and a half years she came back she toured did not record again unfortunately shame because the microphone you know this invented in 1926 right at the time when her voice is at its best it seems then she goes back to europe in the late 30s, and she's doing shows there. Um, her daughter has uh, taken on her own career as a dancer. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about her daughter um, and sort of how we might how we might see Zab- some of Zabel's le- legacy also as you know generational in the sense that her daughter also had a had a major career as an entertainer in a very different mode. Yeah, it turned out to be such a huge part of the story and huge part of the book that um, you know Zabel was quite young when she had her daughter. And her daughter was 11 years old when they went on tour together for three and a half years, um, living overseas in an environment of artists, you know, growing up in, you know, backstage and on stage and in taxi cabs and hotels and around artists and, you know, traveling all over Europe. And her daughter, right about in her early mid-20s, breaks off and forms her own career. She had been studying seriously Spanish dance was very into flamenco and by 1934 changes her surname to Otero and represents herself for the rest of her life as being Spanish, as being from Seville or Madrid, um, tells the press that her father was Spanish and that her mother is an American opera star. Now and then she'll say an Armenian opera star, but always an opera star, and usually American. She really pulls back on all of this uh, Armenian identity stuff completely during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, during the, the big period of her career. And she spends basically the second half of the 30s into the early 40s, into, until 1941, in Europe, in Spain, France, and Germany, performing constantly. Okay. I'll tell you a little story that someone just told me that's not in the book, but is, and it may not be true, but it's a story that's circulating now that's kind of interesting. It would have been in the 1930s that in Paris at a, a nightclub, uh, Kalust Gulbenkian, I, I, I expect you know who that is. He was a, uh, an oil baron, an art collector. Uh, there's a big museum of his work in um, Portugal, uh, of his, his collection, his art collection, and a big you know patron. So he was in a nightclub in Paris in the 30s and uh, is talking to the owner of the nightclub and he sees this dancer and he says, I will bet you that that dancer is Armenian. 
And the owner says, well, dude, she's Spanish. You know, she's doing Spanish dance. I'll bet. Go ask her. So they call her over and ask her, you know, are you Armenian? And she says, yes. And he says, knew it. Come over, have dinner with us. So she winds up meeting Carlos Gulbenki in that way. But um, that was her life. Very few people would have recognized her uh, as Armenian. And she, she intentionally presented herself as other than Armenian. So in the book, you pose this question of sort of how and why serious artists are remembered or forgotten in the United States, and particularly the immigrants among them. Um, so I'm wondering how the story of Zabel Panosian and, and perhaps also her daughter kind of speaks to this question or how you're thinking about that question having written this book. My project on dealing with these early 20th century recordings of um, immigrants to the United States has largely been to describe and include stories of significant performers who had careers in the early 20th century and performed in languages other than English. Because I am myself a fully melting potted American. I have no identity outside of having been from Delaware, you know? And it seems to me that there's so many recordings, hundreds of thousands of recordings of immigrants to the U.S., from, let's say, 1900 to 1940, and so many good ones and interesting stories and amazing individuals that no one looked at for most of a century while we were building the idea of such a thing as Americana that um, uh, grew up out of you know the post-Civil War era and then flourished post-war in the forms of Bob Dylan and Charlie Parker and, I don't know, um, Billie Holiday and Jackson Pollock and whatever it was we decided America was good at. All of it had to be in the English language, it seemed. It turns out that when you go looking, even if you only read and speak English like me, you can find out stories and some traces of memories, if you ask the people who speak the languages, that seem like they ought to fit into the idea of America and what we do and what we've accomplished, um, but that was systemically written out and neglected as other, you know, which just seems to me to be um, selling ourselves short, like we're so much better than we say we are, if you actually go looking. And there's all this incredible music that, you know, we can rediscover as part of a kind of more expansive uh, American musical history. Yeah, if you're just looking for good experiences, because that's what I was after when I started all this, was just like get a box of records and just go through them and put the needle on them and see what they would do to me emotionally. You know, like, is this good? Is it exciting? I just wanted those experiences. If that's, what, if that's all you want, then go, you know, listen to this stuff that's lying around. It's just garbage that people are just throwing away all the time, you know, I figure. So, and, and that's what happened when I first put the needle down on Grunk, was it, it just held me riveted in space. It just, you know, completely stopped me in my tracks. When, when she hits that note, I mean, it's not like other notes. It's very special. Um, David Harrington from the Kronos Quartet once said that... Uh, Zabel Pinozian sang one of the most beautiful notes he'd ever heard in his life. And when he writes his novel, the main character 
in that book will be Zabel Panosian's note. I mean, it contains so much inside of it. And to be able to do that as a 25-year-old immigrant woman from Boston, um, it's special. It's, yeah, not everybody can do that. It, that's a, an inner world of strength and experience and creativity and resourcefulness that is special and important, I think. So maybe we could close by playing just one more of the tracks that, that come along with, um, with this book. Uh, and, and you had mentioned this, this song, Kavar Yem, I Am Darkened, as one of the, the ones that had really stuck with you. Um, maybe you could just read us the lyrics and tell us a little bit about the song, and then we'll play the recording. Sure. So my collaborator on this project, um, there are two collaborators, uh, Harut Arakelian and Harry Kazelian, um, both of whom uh, read Armenian to some extent. Uh, Harry reads very well and knows Turkish and is extremely knowledgeable in the history of Armenian music over the past 150 years or so. Um, extraordinary person, and I'm very lucky that um, we came in contact and that we've kind of shared all of these stories back and forth and ideas. Harry contributed several really important things to the book, one of which were translations of all the lyrics. Um, so his translation of Kavarol Yem uh, goes this way. It says, I am darkened like the night on all sides of me a storm. I have no love for you. I have no love for you. I am in love with the homeland. Over there are miserable, unfortunate mothers, parents who have lost children, countless sisters bereft of brothers. They are spilling copious tears. It sounds like a genocide song, but was composed about 1864 by a guy whose name I will mispronounce because I only read and speak English, uh, Sumbat Shahaziz. Um, and, you know, Isabel had a gift for knowing these songs and remembering them and being able to arrange them and present them in a way that was highly refined and deeply emotionally affecting.
Ian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure uh, to talk with you today about this incredible um, artist, Zabel Panosian. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. I really appreciate it. And where can people get the book? Oh, well, for the time being, um, uh, canary-records.bandcamp.com uh, is where I produce and uh, distribute a lot of stuff. The book is for sale there. It's also at the Armenian Museum in Watertown. It's at uh, Abriel Books in California and will be more widely available, hopefully, by the time that uh, this comes out. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to it. And thank you and your your co-authors so much for all of the work that you've done to bring us some of this amazing music um, and these stories. Thanks for letting me share it. Appreciate it. For those who want to find out more, we'll post a short bibliography, some images, and a list of related episodes on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks, as always, for listening, and until next time, take care.